Welcome to Critical Transit, episode 51. My name is Jeremy Mendelson. I am a transit service planner and co-founder of Transit Matters, an advocacy organization in Boston. And uh, I have recently decided to come out to a, uh, a town resort down in Colorado to uh, work uh, as a bus driver at, uh, and uh, driving a free transit system. And I was reminded of the importance of free transit, something I often forget about, but I uh, this is a thing that I wanted to talk about for quite a while. And uh, so I thought I'd record an episode here on free transit, uh, making the case for free public transit, and debunking some of the myths that uh, I see that transit professionals and others uh, routinely cite, uh, and people who I think should know better. Uh, but I think they often say these things because... Um, transit agencies alone cannot be implementing free transit in most cases because um, while it may not cost that much, it does cost money, at least initially. And, uh, and especially when you get into the point of uh, adding more service, it does cost money. And uh, transit agencies have very tight budgets, and these are political decisions that are made outside of the transit agency. And so um, I'd love to see transit agencies saying, you know, this is a great thing. Free transit would be wonderful for our riders. And you know, we really should look to that in the future. Right now we can't afford it, but this is something that we think is a good idea. But instead they, you know, say a bunch of what I think are uh, are myths and excuses that I will uh, discuss shortly. Um, so uh, why, why is, we take a look at why is free transit important everywhere. Um, there are basically a handful of places in, in the world that offer free transit. Um, these are mostly uh, shuttle services, resort areas, universities, places where the expense of transit is uh, viewed is more easily paid elsewhere. So in a university, you can more easily, you know, students are paying tuition, you take it out of that. In an airport shuttle, you know, you have a tax on the flights or something, and you pay for it out of that. It's a little easier to collect it that way. Um, you know, you have in a resort town, um, you are, you know, you tax the, the lift, the ski lift tickets, or you, you know, there is a sales tax that the town is you know, you get general revenue sources or whatever. Other places where there are easier ways to pay for it, those are the places where you typically see it. But there have been some experiments in big cities. Um, a couple in the United States in the late 80s and 90s um, that I'll mention a little bit later that uh, were discontinued uh, mostly um, because I think they, they, weren't, they weren't really implemented very well. Um, the transit agencies have to want to do this. You know, this is something that is going to come with growing pains and they have, it's just a thing that has to be a commitment and, uh, but I think it's very worthwhile and, uh, and will result in, uh, in amazing uh, gains for the transit agency. Um, one of the significant barriers to, to transit is, is the fare, uh, both for people who can afford it and for people who can't. So I'm going to look at, you know, why is, uh, why is free transit important everywhere? Um, well, so we're going to start with uh, the obvious right? Um, public transit is supposed to be open to everyone. And uh, there are a lot of people who uh, cannot afford to pay for public transit, especially in some places. Um, transit fares are going up uh, quite a lot. Uh, Boston transit fares are over $2. Chicago, San Francisco, all these big cities are over $2. Um, and a lot of smaller cities approaching $2. New York City, it's two seventy-five dollars already, um, going up to $3 very soon, I believe. And, you know, we, when you look at the fact that somebody needs to uh, have a round trip ticket, um, or maybe need to take more than two trips in a day, you know, people who are dependent on transit and who use transit a lot will take the bus to work. Then they'll take the bus to the store. Then they'll take the bus to get their child. Then they'll take the bus home. Then they'll take the bus somewhere to go in the evening. Then they'll take the bus to a friend's house. And now, in some of these cases, you might have a, you might have monthly pass, or you know, there might be day pass options. But still. You're not really going to go find anywhere in this country where the transit fare is going to be less than three fifty or four dollars for a round trip. Even with monthly pass discounts, okay, you might be looking at two dollars a day. Um, but still, there are a lot of people who are really struggling, and I look at transit as a social justice program. Um, you know, we are serving everybody who needs it. Okay, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like Medicare so, or uh, Social Security um, programs that uh, serve everyone. And that, you know, so they serve people, you, you could argue, you could say, well, you know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't give these programs to people who really don't need them. Um, but kind of what that does is it 
uh, ensures that there's political support for these programs to continue when you give it to everyone. Uh, this is kind of the argument around universal health care. You know, right now there is not support for uh, good health care for poor people, right? But if you give it to everyone and you charge everyone for it, maybe there's th this sort of the logic here. Um, and so if transit is going to fulfill its mission of being open to everyone and serving everyone, you have to accommodate everyone. And you don't accommodate everybody by, with a public service by having a fee at the door. You know, when you call the fire department, they don't charge you, a, you know, $2 to respond to the fire. When, you know, you call the police, when you go into the library, you don't have to pay to, to get a book to read. You know, and, and, and these are examples of public services that are provided for a reason and that um, it, is, it is a net good to society to allow people to move around. Um, and so I think that's, that's a you know, very, very basic, uh, most obvious reason um, for uh, you know, mobility, freedom of mobility and allow people to move around, people to, uh, to go and find jobs, and to and to do things in in their city or their region. Um, in some places, transit is even more expensive. You know, you look at places where transit is going longer distances, and you're talking about five to seven dollars. Um, you there's also um, you know a lot of um, a lot of places um, the um, are trying to get more people on transit. Right? It's this is sort of doublespeak that we hear coming out of the government at all levels, right? We want people to take transit, but we never want to fund it. You know, we always, we always say, oh, yes, you know, get more transit into do biking and walking, active transportation, you know, take the bus, leave your car at home, you know, it's healthier for you, all this stuff. But at the same time, we spend most of the transportation budget building highways. And, you know, we, we, don't, we don't ever back up this idea of, of taking public transit. When you... When you have a fare, when you charge people money, I mean, think about it. You know, those of us who've been using transit for a long time don't always think this through. But when you're when you're getting on a bus, you say you're new to the bus, right? Um, there's a, there are a lot of barriers to using the bus. Okay, first you have to wait for it. You have to go to the stop. The information is often poor. You might not know if it's coming, when it's coming. Um, you don't know what to expect. Maybe you don't know how much it is. The fare adds a whole other layer of complexity there. Okay, you have to find out what it is, which may be challenging. It might not be posted at the stop. And then do you need exact change? Do you need a special fare card? Uh, London, they don't even take cash on the bus. Um, so you need to deal with that. Um, and most places only take exact change. Um, what if it's a Sunday night and all the stores are closed? Or what if you don't have a store near you? Um, what if you, I had a recent situation in Denver. I was staying at a friend's house and I had spent all my cash. And uh, I could have gotten some more at the ATM, but... Where I was staying, there was no ATM within two miles. I had to walk two miles to go to the ATM so that I could get on the bus, pay the bus fare. Um, and then once I got to the ATM, I, then I had to go find change because I had $20 bills. Um, it adds a whole other layer of complexity. And not only that, but when you get on the bus, it's kind of like a judgment moment, right? You're, like, you're being judged by the driver and the people on the bus as you... Uh, especially if you're new to it, you're fumbling with dollar bills. For a lot of people, this can be very intimidating. You know, those of us who've used transit all our lives are, are used to that, and, and it's not a big deal to us. But um, but it can be rather intimidating, and a lot of people will just just not do it. Um, also, the uh, the fact that driving is often cheaper. Um, now, people laugh at me when I say that, but think this through for a minute. If you're talking about driving and parking in a parking garage in the middle of downtown Manhattan on a weekday morning, then yes, driving is going to be more expensive than taking transit from almost anywhere you could possibly take transit from, uh, even Pennsylvania <laughs> or something. Um, but if, you, if you're thinking about local trips that don't involve driving into an expensive central business district, let's say you're driving to the supermarket, pretty much everywhere outside of Manhattan uh, in Brooklyn, um, in this country, uh, every supermarket has parking. Either they have a free parking lot or they have this parking on the street. Um, you go to a restaurant, wherever it is, the vast majority of parking is free or very cheap. Maybe it's like 25 cents an hour. That's always going to be cheaper. Even the cost of gas is pretty much minuscule and you don't think about it. You know, it's not an expense. It's not like you think about having to go get gas just to go drive to the supermarket for a mile. Uh, but if you do that in the bus, there's 350 $4. New York City, it's almost $5 um, for a round trip. 
you know, that dissuades a lot of people, um, both people who have the money and people who don't. And people who have the money, just because somebody has the money, you know, maybe they're, they got plenty of money and they're going out and getting drunk all the time, doesn't mean that they're going to want to spend it on the transit, right? So when you add that fare, you disincentivize a lot of people, a lot of discretionary trips. Um, and I think in a time when we want to increase transit usage and shift people from uh, single occupancy modes to, or, or single occupancy motorized modes to uh, other more sustainable alternatives, we need to do what we can to allow people to live their lives on transit. There's another uh, thing that's, that's uh, sort of related to that um, in that second item, which is the, the freedom to live your life as you need to. Um, there are a lot of reasons why the, the ferry system doesn't work for anything that might be considered out of the ordinary. Um, so there are a lot of um, so, so there are a lot of situations which you might have to pay twice, right? So for example, um, let's say that you get up in the morning and you're tired and you um, and you forget something. Okay, you get on the bus and you realize, oh, I, where's my phone? I forgot my phone. Well, I don't, okay, maybe I don't need my phone today. Oh, no, I have to go meet somebody after work, whatever. I need my phone. I got to go back and get it, okay? You just pay it. Now you're going to have to go back. Um, now you're, you're going to pay another fare, or you're going to have to try to tell the driver, hey, you know, and they may or, not believe, may, or may not believe you or care um, if you need to stop at the grocery store on the way home. Why should you have to pay twice? It's not really fair. Um, you're basically traveling the same distance, using the system pretty much the same way. Um, what if you need a pit stop? Let's say you're, a, well, I guess you could be any age, but I was thinking particularly if you're a senior, maybe, um, if you have a disability, um, if you have a child or you are a child, uh, maybe you need a break. Um, if your child is throwing a temper tantrum on the bus, for God's sake, take him off the bus. They'll make everybody listen to that. I'm going to get some angry hate mail from that. But I don't think that's fair. <laughs> take him off the bus and teach him that if you're going to be screaming like that, you can't take the bus and you have to wait for the next bus. Well, but then you got to pay again. That's that's not that's not really fair. Um, somebody who's trying to do the right thing. Uh, what if you need to use the bathroom? What if you need to transfer? Sometimes you need to, you know, subway systems, right? There might be a tr place where you can transfer um, in the system and you don't have to tap your card again. Um, but if you do go out, you have to tap your card again. What if you go right by the grocery store? Or if you, you know there's a place right up there where you can use the bathroom, where you can get a drink of water or coffee. Um, you have to pay again just to come in, just for a 10-minute break? Um, there are a lot of reasons that, that one could think of, and I can't list them all here, um, that you may need to uh, to do that. And then there's you know issues with the fare box, right? And if you go... Um, you know, if you go to the end of, near the end of the line and then you get off and you get on again soon after, uh, maybe a quick errand, um, the system won't, um, you know, it, it will, uh, I mean, anywhere, anywhere time you do a quick errand, you're going to get charged for a second fare. Um, and a lot of systems now are moving to a 90-minute fare or a two-hour fare, which basically instead of just getting one, just getting being able to get on and get off and that's it, you can get on as many vehicles as you need to within that time period. Um, it's sort of like a two-hour two pass is, is a way to think of it. Um, we've been campaigning for this for Boston or promoting this for Boston. Um, San Francisco has it. Portland has it. Uh, Minneapolis has it. A number of places are, are doing this now. Um, and that solves a lot of these problems, but it still doesn't address uh, many of the issues. Uh, the fact that you um, still have to pay a fare in the first place. There are... And some people will point out that if you have a pass, you, a monthly pass or a weekly pass or sometimes a day pass, the, a lot of these issues don't apply. Um, we see that pass holders behave differently, right? You, you might make a stop you wouldn't otherwise make because you know you don't have to pay again. Um, or you may take an extra trip um, that you wouldn't otherwise take. But, um, and then these, these are good things. Um, and this will, you know, we can remember this when, you know, we start talking about how... Um, People say, oh, well, if people can get a ride for free, then they'll just go for joy rides. And well, a lot of people already essentially ride for free because they're already paying for passes and every trip is essentially free. Um, so we'll think about that. Um, another big reason here uh, for, the, uh, for free transit is, um, you know, I'm a bus driver and I, I see 
um, and, I, and I just try to think about it as I'm as I'm on the bus. It is so nice, um, not just as a passenger, um, and I guess maybe put this in the, in the last bucket in the second item. The 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 fact that you don't have to stand out in line for ten minutes in the cold and the rain while some idiot is fumbling with the dollar bill, trying to jam a dollar bill into the machine and things breaking, and now there's forty people online behind him. Um, it's so nice not to have to deal with that. Also, as a driver, it's so nice not to have to deal with the fares. You know, people just get on. You say hello, or they don't say hello, whatever. Um, and they get on, they sit down, and that's it. And the and the big reason I bring this up from the operator point of view uh, is not just that you keep in the bus moving, and you know you don't have the door open all the time and freezing, but it, it's that 99% of conflicts in transit result from fares. Uh, somebody doesn't have the right fare. Um, somebody is, is trying to cheat the system. Um, you know, sneak on, not paying, whatever. Uh, 90% of conflicts or more uh, result from uh, failure to pay the fare, which escalates. The driver says, you know, please, sir, please pay the fare, or you didn't have enough. Um, and then a lot of times these escalate into violence. Uh, at best, the the uh, it creates an atmosphere where um, the you know now the bus driver how is the bus driver going to ask passengers to to follow a certain rule or whatever after uh, you know they're seeing the somebody just you know refuse to pay and, and get away with it um, it creates this sort of culture of um, of sort of I don't want to say lawlessness but or chaos but it's almost it's almost that um, this you know the bus driver needs to kind of have control of their ship. And it's very difficult to to do that when uh, you know you have this constant risk of conflict, and you're trying to you know you're trying to de-escalate and have non-violent situations. Um, this is and there's a tension there because then you know some people say, "Oh, I paid. Why doesn't that guy pay?" It's like, okay, you know, if you drive around this neighborhood long enough, you know, you just you just kind of stop asking because you just you know, and and different places the transit agencies handle these situations differently, but. Um, for the most part, they know that that there is fare evasion that goes on, um, and it's it's not insignificant. It's at least a few percent in most places, um, either from short fares or from uh, or from people, uh, you know, just refusing to pay. Um, so for safety reasons, right, reducing the conflicts and and violence, um, and you you remove the responsibility and the distraction from the operator. I mean, how many times do you see? the operator trying to fidget with the fare box if people are trying to pay while they're trying to drive along because they're, they're you know, otherwise they're not going to be on schedule. Uh, the fare box, it, it takes it takes so much out of it and it's the potential to cause collisions and, uh, and at best uh, extra stress for the operator and the passengers. The, um, you know, related to that, uh, my last item here is efficiency of transit. Um, people see all these passengers paying, but what they don't realize is that the fares collected don't actually cover that much of the cost of operating transit. Um, it's usually anywhere from 10 to 40%. I think New York city might be a little higher than that. Um, but the, and, you know, the, the fares don't cover the cost because it's very expensive to run transit service. You have to pay people to drive it and you have to pay, you have to run it frequently. Otherwise people aren't going to use it that much. Um, and if you don't run it frequently, then it's cost even more because fewer people ride it. For bus, um, so if you know it's not only that, but you have to pay people to maintain it. You have to pay a whole staff, all, all kinds of administrative staff, and the people who plan and, and schedule the routes, um, the people that oversee the drivers, the people that do the hiring, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's so many people involved in a transit agency that, um, and, and so and it's so much money. Obviously, buses are expensive to maintain, um, all the parts, the fuel. Um, it, it's a very expensive operation, and the fares at at, at Typically, the fare is generally in the twenty to forty percent range uh, for transit agencies, and a lot of small transit agencies have figured out that the with the money that they you know small rural agencies have figured out that the money they collect is so insignificant that the cost of uh, of do, having the fare boxes and counting it and collecting it and uh, you know and processing the cash and, and and maybe having fare cards and all the rest is just just doesn't make sense. Um, and they just do away with it entirely, have free transit. Um, and now I think this applies to bigger cities too, because I think that while you do make some money, um, what you make is not as much as people think it is. Because in on, on busy corridors, you waste 
as much as 30% of your travel time just sitting at the stop collecting fares. Uh, it's called the dwell time. It's the time spent at, uh, at the stop. Um, and so when you're sitting there and there's a line of people outside the door and then you miss the light and you miss the next light and you miss the next light yeah, and then more people come running and, and it's just a cascading. And so the bus is just, you're paying the operator to sit there and, you know, this is a very expensive thing to do and, uh, you know, it's a very skilled position and you're, so you're wasting time doing that. Um, a lot of that issue can be solved with a proof of payment fare system where you, you have people pay in advance and retain a ticket and they get inspections. Um, but it's still, there's, there's still problems with that too. And uh, maybe I'll go into that in, in a future, in a future episode. I, mean, I think it's better than the traditional system of paying at the door, the driver. Um, but, um, but maybe another, for another show, um, in some systems you need to have multiple operators per, per vehicle or, or train set because you need somebody to collect fares. So Boston is a notorious example. They have, um, on their light rail system, they have one operator per car. And if they need to add a second car, then they have to have another operator in that car. And if they want to have a third car, then it's a third operator. Um, you don't need that. You only need one operator to drive the train and they can see the doors and the mirrors and all that. But it, the, the problem is that if you need to collect fares, then you need somebody sitting there uh, to do that um, unless you have a different system, which again, talk about that in the future. But the fact that you spend so much time sitting at the stop, you can reinvest that, that time, which is money. You reinvest that into more frequent service, um, which is more freedom to travel around, right? Um, Fair collection costs generally are believed to be somewhere around 10% on average. Um, that includes the fare box um, and the, the staff that, that handle all that, and the people who collect the money. Um, what it does not include is the operator time sitting at the stop. And I think, I think if you include that, then you'll get a much, much lower number for the percent of costs that are, that are covered by fares. And you start to wonder when when fares get into the when it gets into the five to ten, five to ten percent range, you start to say, does this make any sense? You know, we we have this whole infrastructure, and we could you know for for fares that slows us down, that confuses our riders, that that um, deters deters ridership, that makes it difficult for everyone, causes conflicts. Just get rid of this stuff, and you see ridership increase if you get rid of it. Um, this is, you know, this is something that we want to do. We're supposed to, yeah, increase ridership, right? And, um, and and I think, in in closing, one thing that I should say, probably should have said this at the beginning, is that I believe that fare collection doesn't make any sense anywhere, um, except in you know when you're going from one big city to another over you know fifty, hundred miles, long distances. There's a case to be made that the amount that you collect is actually significant and, you know, can actually pay for the cost of service or close to it and, and is still a good thing. Now, how you deal with people who can't afford that and need to, need to move around, that's, that's another issue. Um, but it, except in those cases, I believe that fair collection doesn't make any sense and that the only reason we, we even have fair collection anyway is because transit used to be privately operated. When you had private operators, you know, private companies just running a bus down a route and trying to get as many fares as possible, um, you know, they're concerned with, with profit and they, you know, and you have to charge. And the, that only ever made sense, it only ever was profitable before um, the government started funding the hell out of autos, of, of automobiles, and now we have this car-dominant society. But if you look, when did all these, trans, well, these uh, private transit operators fail? You're talking about the 50s. After World War II, when everybody started suburbanizing and cars, you know, mass, mass uh, automobilization. And, um, I mean, there were signs of falling apart before that, but, I mean, that's when, you know, and then the 60s and 70s were when all these public cities and, and towns and counties and states started assuming responsibility for this as, as a public service because they realized how important it is. So we have that legacy now because we've always charged a fare. It's always been looked at as, well, how much money does it cost after we receive the fares? Um, we need to just scrap that and say, this is a public service. You know, We don't charge for the fire department, the library, and the schools um, because it doesn't make sense there either. And we need to, um, 
I always use the parks, you know, because every time you go in the park, you have to pay $2. doesn't make sense there either. And you can see why we don't do it. And I think we need to, to have that, a similar shift in uh, public transit. Now I'm going to address five myths or what I consider to be fallacies uh, that are constantly cited in support of the status quo of charging people to use, uh, which should be a free public service that open to everyone. Uh, number one, people will use it more. Um, there's a number of components to this. Um, people say that, well, you know, if we don't charge anything, then what's to stop people from just riding around all day? Well, I do that sometimes because uh, I'm a transit nerd. Uh, nobody says anything to me. Um, there, if people want to ride the bus all day, very few people want to care about, you know, when I do those transit advocacy, right, it's very few people who care about it because they want to do it, right? Transit is unique in, in a world of, of things that people do in a given day, right? When they go to the store, um, you know, maybe they want to, um, you know, maybe they could buy groceries or whatever they need, but at least they have some choice in what they're doing. Um, if they're going to buy clothing or um, sporting goods or, you know, a lot of cases they, they actually want to do that. Uh, if they're going to a lecture or to entertainment, they want to do that. Uh, very few people are on the bus because they want to be on the bus. Um, and I think that number of people is so small that it's really not a problem. Um, there have been a few studies of systems that have tried fare-free transit in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, this was not, not really a problem. And to the extent that it, that it did happen, um, it just wasn't really managed um, in, in the right way. The transit agency never really supported it. Um, you have the issue of uh, homeless people and kids, uh, high school kids, middle school kids, um, that are just kind of there um, because it's a place to be, and, you know, maybe it's cold outside um, and they have a place to be. They can ride around. Um, I strongly believe that there are other ways to address these issues. And like I said, transit agencies can't do this on their own. This has to be a more holistic, part of a more holistic solution. And uh, the way that we neglect people who are experiencing homelessness in this country is disgraceful. And we need to do something about that. Um, we should not have a situation where people are riding the bus around all day because they have no other warm place to sit. Um, that is, is just, that's just unacceptable. And we have to deal with that in other ways. Uh, transit, can, just like schools or any, any other service, cannot bear the burden for a broken socioeconomic justice system. Um, you know, the same way that people want the schools to fix all these issues of poverty, economic inequality that are just covered up. You know, you can't, you can't educate kids and expect them to do well when they're coming in hungry every day and, and you know, dealing with, uh, you know, PTSD from domestic violence and everything. These are things that have to be solved, you know, in, in other ways, in more holistic ways. And we can't expect transit to deal with that problem. So, so the idea that, that, oh, homeless people will ride it. Well, well, sure, this is an issue that we need to deal with. We need to find a solution to it. Um, but it shouldn't be a barrier to, to say it shouldn't be just like, well, okay, well, homeless people, okay, well, we can't do it. Um, here's a big one that I, that I get uh, quite often. Um, ridership will increase so much that we just won't have capacity. And right now we're, we're filled to the brim already and we just can't take the more people. This is just backwards logic to me. It seems like you want to increase ridership. Like this is the whole point of providing an effective public service that is sustainable, that, uh, you know, provide, that is, that is a healthier way to, for people to get around, it's more space efficient, all the benefits of transit. And now we're saying, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to do something that would encourage people to ride transit because then we'd have more people riding transit. That's backwards logic. I think the, the crux of this argument comes down to if the ridership, if, if you get a marginal ridership increase, then, okay, fine, you can absorb that. And, and traditionally, you'd have a fare, so if you get a marginal ridership increase, that's good. But if, you, if you, your ridership increases to the point where you have to actually add service, then it's costing you money, even if you're collecting fares. Um, even if you're filling up a bus with 50 people and you're getting 50 fares, um, it's still costing you probably more than that to, for that, you know, those 50 people based on you know, the distance you're running and all that. So I think that's where this comes from. But we have to 
think beyond that, think bigger than that and think, okay, you know, what do we need to do to capacity? Um, maybe we need to, maybe it's time to rethink the roots and do a system redesign in some places. Maybe that's not appropriate here. Maybe we're just thinking, okay, increase capacity in certain places. Um, in smaller cities, in a lot of places, this isn't even going to come up because the ridership is already pretty light and, you know, maybe need another bus or two, but it's something that can be absorbed by the budget. Um, the, in, in, you know, bigger cities, when you're talking about, you know, lots of people, um, this is an issue that needs serious consideration, but this is why I say transit agencies can't do it on their own. They need um, political support, but it's a thing that, that should be talked about as a, as a net positive uh, because it, it could be addressed. Um, and if your ridership, you know, and if just like I've said many times on the podcast, if your ridership gets to the point where you just physically can't get enough buses out there uh, to run an efficient service, well, then, then it's time to bring higher capacity vehicles. Then it's time for articulated buses or double-decker buses or, or light rail. Um, and that's that's a good thing. Um, and this is why you need it, because you're you're going to free transit. You know, when you get your ridership up, it's going to justify more service, which becomes a cycle. And you need to take advantage of that. As I mentioned earlier, people always think about the cost. Uh, they think about that it's going to cost. This is going to cost us so much to get rid of the fares. But as I mentioned earlier, the fares don't actually make up that much of the cost of running the transit. And people always forget about the time spent at the bus stop. When you consider that, and you consider all back end costs associated with the fares, um, as well as the cost, you could even think about the cost of lost revenue because you're charging fares. Um, I guess it's not lost revenue because they wouldn't be paying, but if you quantify all those numbers and you think about all that, it doesn't really come up to that much. In most places, you're not talking more than 10 to 15% of the, uh, right, sometimes significantly less of the, uh, the cost of operating the service that is, that is actually, once you consider the, the time actually spent uh, on the bus at the stop collecting the fares. Um, so I think that's a that's a way overblown uh, concern. Um, here's another one that's similar to the first one. Um, people don't value things that are free. This is a criticism that I get uh, they get often um, that well it's going to increase graffiti, um, it's going to be dirtier, it's going to you know sort of these quality of life things. Um, you know it's going to attract kids just kind of riding around and just making noise and it's going to be unpleasant. Um, in general, I find no evidence among free transit services uh, for, for these things. Um, we also find no evidence um, free highway versus toll highways um, or you know any, any kind of any kind of services that when you compare um, free to paid services, you could also make the argument that um, if it's free, people value it more. you know people who take advantage of community health clinics and um, you know, Free libraries, I guess, is well. I don't know how, how many paid libraries you have, but um, you know, if you if you get a scholarship to a college, um, you could think of any number of things that you know when you when you get it for free because you need it because you have some need, um, then you know you really appreciate it because you know that that you kind of getting lucky and you know if you had to pay for it you couldn't do this, you couldn't have this opportunity, so you could make the opposite argument. Um, I don't know what the evidence is for that empirically, um, but and so I'm not going to try to say, I'm not going to try to make that argument. But it's it's the kind of thing that just doesn't this just doesn't make sense um, when you actually stop and think about it. And there's I don't see evidence for it. Um, the we we already provide unlimited transit for some people. I mentioned earlier if you have a um, if you have a monthly pass or weekly pass or some other kind of pass, um, unlimited, it provides unlimited access. You, you already have that, that free access. Um, it's, and so if you dig into this argument, what it's essentially saying is that, uh, poor people or people with less money don't value things as much as rich people. It's sort of saying that, right? Because if you're, um, if you're rich, or you're, I shouldn't say rich, if you have the means to have a monthly pass, then it's, it, every additional trip is free for you, right? So you're basically getting in every day you're not paying for it, right? So it's essentially free. So it doesn't, the argument doesn't really make sense on its face. Um, 
free transit already exists all over. Um, we, we often forget um, when we go looking for public transit agencies that have this. Um, there are airport circulators. There are corporate shuttles, um, all kinds of shuttles, really. Um, rail diversions. Every time a subway is down you know, or the light rail is down, they'll have a bus shuttle. Do people value that any less than uh, than the, the rail and you know any result? Well, I'm sure they do because it's slower. But does it does it result in any damage or any problems because of that? Uh, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, lots of circulators. There are rail links, sh- feeder shuttles. There are all kinds of services. U- universities have entire transit systems that are free, um, and they don't. Uh, and here in Breckenridge, Colorado, where I am right now, there is a there is a transit. Uh, there's free transit. Um, the county bus service that goes up to Frisco is, is also free. Um, and there are a number of places like this with free transit. Um, and I, I don't think they value it any less than uh, than the, the service that's not free. If anything, they value it more because there are people who are taking trips. You know, I, I can go up from here. I can go up to Frisco or, or um, Dillon, Silverthorne, anytime I want. And it doesn't cost me anything. And I definitely value that because if I had to pay for it, um, you know, the, you're talking 10 miles to Frisco. If I had to pay for that, maybe that's $5 or more. And, you know, I couldn't afford to just do that every other day or whenever I felt like going up there to the store. You know, it's, it's, uh, so I, I just don't, I don't buy this argument. Um, if you have any proof or evidence, you can send it to me and I will, uh, I will discuss it. Um, and as I said, yeah, income, I don't think, I don't think that income determines whether you value people or things. Um, are, are rich people nicer than poor people? Um, in fact, all of my life experience would suggest the opposite, that people who don't have much or anything are much more kind and generous than people who have a lot, right? I mean, you could look at somebody like Donald Trump on, on, on one extreme, right? Um, and, you know, on the other extreme, it's like on the subway. You ever see on the subway somebody coming through and asking for money? Um, you've got to be a pretty desperate situation to ask for money from random people on the subway, right? And it's always... It's always the, the people who you can tell are just coming from work, from work at, you know, crappy jobs or, you know, getting out late at night. Uh, those are the people who, you know, go and get in and get a dollar. You know, and you see all the, you see all the people in suits, people that are just coming back from the, from the clubs, and they don't give a dime. So, I mean, this is anecdotal. But, you know, if you think about it, the, the argument, this is basically arguing that, that uh, you know, rich people are nicer than poor people. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't buy that for a second. Um, and lastly on that, if it, there's a, there's a, a basically, a um, it's a kind of a philosophy, I guess, a philosophical concept that, um, does the system respect me? Right. So, so I actually, in the book, human transit, um, the planner, Jarrett Walker goes through seven, uh, he, I think he came up with seven, um, basic questions about a transit service and it's you know basically does it respect me and my time does it run when i need it does it go where i want um does it respect my money etc um and so thinking about this if the system respects me and my needs then i will respect it right if if you're charging me an obscene amount of money and the service is slow and you know and it's cumbersome and i have to you know stand there in line to pay and be judged and you know maybe i'm a little less likely to respect it I don't know what that even means in in, uh, in actual practical terms. What respecting the transit is, I don't I don't really understand that. Um, and I'd be curious to talk to more operators and figure out and and to ask them, you know, is there can they describe what respecting the system means? Uh, is it more respecting them? Um, I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, I don't know. Um, fourth here we have, um, this is one that I think is particularly obscene when I hear it, um, which is the, it's along with the sort of the people will use it more, um, column, but, but a little bit different. It's, it's the, when it comes to paratransit right now, legally in the United States, at least, um, paratransit is the, the door to door service, or at least curb to curb service, they call it. They don't always have to walk you to your door from the curb to your door. Um, but curb-to-curb service that is required to be provided to people who are unable to use the fixed route service because of a physical or cognitive disability. So if they can't if they can't get to the bus stop, um, you know anybody can use the fixed route. If they want to use a fixed route, you know whatever mobility device they have, it takes them a while to get on. They're a service animal. They have to be accommodated. But if they if they can't get to the bus stop 
or maybe they have a cognitive disability and so they can't understand how to read the bus sign or they can't understand how to figure out where the bus goes. Um, anything that prevents them from using the fixed route service, um, they are eligible for this, this paratransit service. But, and paratransit is expensive because it's essentially a shared ride taxi service. Now they have to call and re reserve in advance and there's complications that make it not a desirable service to have to use. But um, it's expensive to run. Um, now they typically don't get charged more than a couple of dollars. Legally, they, transit agencies are allowed to charge twice as much for paratransit fare as they charge for fixed route. Well, now that means that if they provide free public transit, the fixed route transit, then they have to provide free prior transit. Two times zero is zero. So there's an objection that people will say that, well, you know, paratransit is already very expensive. It's already a large item of our budget. There are some, some big agencies that paratransit is 20% of the budget, even though it's like 2% of the trips or something. Um, because it can cost anywhere from like thirty to fifty dollars per passenger trip, whereas fixed route is usually in the range of three to five dollars per passenger trip, um, subsidy per passenger, um, and in big cities it's going to be lower. In big cities, paratransit cost will be higher because it's the more traffic and et cetera. So, the, but this I, I find this is so if I understand the argument, right? It's going to be a higher cost, but to me it seems like. These are some of the most vulnerable people in society, and we're making an, we're trying to use them to make an argument that we shouldn't have free transit because we don't want them to get around. Or, I mean, I, I the the use of paratransit by people who don't really need it is something that is being dealt with by some cities and should be dealt with, although there's a limit to it, right? It's just like going after food stamps. You know, it's the idea of the welfare queen, right? For the, every one person that uses it who maybe doesn't really need it, there's probably 500 people who really need it, you know? And so you're always going to get some abuse of any system, right? If you go to the other end and you say, well, we're not going to give, you know, we're going to cut, we're going to make it really hard to get on food stamps, Right? Now you're going to have a lot of people that are going hungry because it's too cumbersome. You know, they have to go to the office during the hours where they're working and, and all these things. So it's the same thing here, right? If you make it really, really difficult uh, for people to use the service, then you're going you're gonna to let a lot of people fall through the cracks. So would I rather people not take advantage of a system that's designed to help people in need? Of course. But there's always going to be some of that in any system that you have. And I think this is a case where, you know, people who use paratransit, you know, should have to be certified for it. Great. Let's work with them. Let's try to, let's offer programs to help people use the fixed route service if they're, these are called travel training programs. Um, if they are able to use the fixed service, let fixed route service, let's help them do that and let's show them how to do that. Maybe they only need paratransit for certain trips. You know, maybe in the winter they can't access a particular bus stop because it's always full of ice. So let's make sure that they, you know, that in the winter they're able to get the paratransit and other times they can use the fixed route. Um, let's do things like that, sure. Um, but there's going to be a limit to that. And if we, I think, when we are trying to limit the mobility of um, the most vulnerable people in society, and the mobility is already limited. Um, just look into paratransit and how difficult it is. You typically have to call a day in advance um, if you have a 10 o'clock appointment, you know, you ask for like a 9 o'clock trip, they can pick you up at 6.30 in the morning and you have to be ready. That's your option. That, that's it. So it's not an easy system to use. Um, and I, I think the, the idea of people using paratransit unnecessarily is sort of overblown. Um, but it's, like I said, there's a limit to that. And finally, um, why not proof of payment? As I mentioned earlier, proof of payment is a system that is in use in San Francisco. Um, and pretty much all European cities, a um, number of uh, just about every light rail system in the United States, um, with the exceptions of Boston and Philadelphia, I think just them. Um, this is where you um, you buy a ticket in advance before you get in the vehicle, and uh, you have to retain a receipt. You hold a receipt, um, and in some places will allow you to pay cash on the bus if you don't um, if you don't have a a fair card or a credit card, or it means to pay outside the bus. Um, 
I think in San Francisco that's the case, um, where you can get on the bus in the back door if because um, they don't have machines at all the bus stops, right? So if you get in the bus in the back door, if you have a pass, and if you need to pay cash, you can pay in the front, but nobody is supervising you. You just have to hold the receipt, and then there are random inspections conducted. Um, and this is a much better system than the traditional system of having to line up and pay the driver at the at the door um, because it it speeds up the buses, deals with the efficiency problem uh, pretty nicely, and it also uh, removes the fare collection responsibility from the operator. So it reduces conflicts and violence, and it also, uh, you know, the driver can, can focus on what they're doing and, and do that safely. Um, but proof of payment still has its own issues. Um, it has, you still have to pay, right? So it's still going to be a disincentive to people who are going to, honest people who are going to pay. Uh, fare evasion rates with the proof of payment system have been shown to be generally between 5 and 10% um, on the light rail systems that have been studied. And, um, you know, so it's the, the cost of fare collection, when you think of dwell times at the station, are going to be lower in that system. So it sort of it sort of outweighs the, the loss, the potential loss revenue. Sort of, it's still better. But proof of payment still has its own issues. Um, like I said, you still have to pay, so it's still going to disincentivize people using transit that um, you know might have other options, and uh, or or can't afford it. And um, and speaking of who can't afford it, um, who is able to risk a ticket? Um, you know, if you're if you're um, you know commuting to Wall Street in a suit, um, and you don't pay your fare, well, you can you can take the risk of getting a ticket once in a while. You know, fifty dollar ticket, a hundred dollar ticket, not a big deal for you. If you're poor and you can't, you know, you get a ticket, you know, like I, when I say ticket, I'm talking about a citation here for not paying the fine, uh, for not paying the, the um, for not paying the fare. Um, you get a citation, um, you know, not only do you have to pay the fine, which can be over $100, um, but it also, if you don't have the money, now you get, to, now that goes on your record, all of a sudden you have to show up in court. You can get your driver's license taken away. Um, you can get all kind get into all kinds of problems. You can eventually wind up in jail for um, what is it um, when you don't follow a court order. Um, I forget the term for that. Um, contempt of court is the term for it. Yeah, you can be held in contempt of court for not paying a fine. This is what was going on in Ferguson, Missouri, that was highlighted that you know most of the city is making tons of money off of poor black people who they're you know giving sort of silly fines to. Um, and this this happens. This is real, and it happens in a lot of places. And so, especially with the uh, the systemic racism that we have in this country, um, the um, and all kinds of other biases that you know, all kinds of other prejudices, and um, and the police brutality that we see here. Um, even you know, and, and you have to be living under a rock to not know that um, you know there's certain people who are going to be targeted uh, more than others, and. Um, that's just, even without police, you know, I prefer not using police in this situation. So I prefer using, you know, unarmed, uh, fair inspectors who are especially trained to deal with these things. Um, they can call in the police if they need the police, but, um, you know, when you don't, when you don't have a weapon and the power violence of the state behind you, um, you tend to be a little bit more respectful to people and a little bit, uh, less, uh, prone to escalating situations because, you, you you have to you can't rely on, uh, on, on you know I can always beat the hell out of them if needed um, that's my my theory and so proof of payment certainly has these issues that you know whenever you're asking for enforcement of anything um, it's something to deal with and these are issues that I think need to be worked out it's a better system than uh, than this the standard system but I do think that this still it's still not a perfect system. Um, so lastly, I think we just have to ask ourselves, what are the, what is the purpose of transit, right? You know, if we're trying to uh, serve everybody and carry everyone, then we have to be open to everybody and we have to be encouraging more people to use the system. And like I said, the more people that use the system that are not uh, the poorest of the poor, uh, the more we have political support for the system, right? The more the the needs, the things that go wrong, the more those get attention and, uh, you know, and just like things like Social Security, it's like 
wish people will defend poor people's benefits. Poor people don't have a very good voice, and uh, you know they're very marginalized, and they don't have a very strong voice in the political system because of a lot of things that you probably understand already. So um, this is something that just has to be open to everyone. There is a place in a city called Tallinn in Estonia, which is uh, has been experimenting with free transit. You have to be a resident though, so it's not quite the same because you have to be. This is often cited as an example, um, but you have to be. A resident, so you have to show a resident card. So there's still time that's taken by you know having to show the driver your card, um, and I think that's a, that's a problem. Um, here in Breckenridge, Colorado, we have free public transit. Uh, there are a number of places that have free public transit in the United States. Um, like I said, they fall into a handful of categories um, that have generally been justified for reasons of you know an easier way to collect the fare, or or the fare collected is just so little that it doesn't make sense at all. And as I said, I argue that that's the case for, for everywhere, really. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening to this. Uh, please send me your feedback and your thoughts. Um, I wanted to get these arguments out here because I think that this is this viewpoint is not very common, or at least not very uh, commonly stated. And uh, you know, now I, I'm, uh, I'm no longer uh, working for a transit agency in a planning form. I can say whatever I want. So, uh, <laughs> so there you go. Um, Please send me feedback to feedback at criticaltransit.com. You can find me on Twitter at Critical Transit, although I'm not always on there that often. Um, You can search for me on Facebook, and I will show up. Uh, I'm not the uh, middle-aged guy with a fro in Washington, D.C., but uh, I am from Boston, and it says I live in Breckenridge, Colorado now, so you can search for me on Facebook. Um, or you can uh, yeah, email me through the website. Critical, uh, you can contact me. Uh, check out the website, criticaltransit.com. And if you like this, please send it and share it with uh, your friends and, and coworkers. I'm going to be doing more of these, especially as it gets into the winter and I start getting, uh, you know, come especially come mid-December, mid-January, so I get bored. Um, but I'm going to try to do an episode once a month on uh, some topic of general transit interest. And, uh, and I will, um, if I haven't already, I will get the uh, bike touring ep- episodes uh, uploaded soon.